0: Now I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. I didn't know who was going to be here tonight. I know what Chuck was going to speak on. It wasn't this. But I have on my heart a burden to speak to you about revival. Because if there's anything we need, it's revival, isn't it? Amen. Revival in England, we need revival in, in, in America. Do you know what revival is? <coughs> revival is God. Becoming active and working in the lives of people. Saving them and cleansing them and putting things right. We need God to be working. Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken and then turn over to Luke chapter 3 Luke chapter 3 I won't read every verse but it says in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea then verse 2, the word of God came to John, that's John the Baptist, in the, in the desert. He went into all the country around Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And here it quotes from the passage we've read. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled. Notice the change. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. And the rough ways smooth. And all mankind will see God's salvation. Now you notice there's a, a difference, a change in some of the words. The reason being that the Old Testament passages, when they're quoted in the New, well, not from the Hebrew version of the Old Testament but from the Greek version it was called the Septuagint and the Greek version changed the words a little but not substantially uh, to alter the meaning but just to give a different sense and that's useful now road building is very important today you've done a lot in America you've got very well ahead of us and then the Germans followed with their autobahns during the Second World War and then poor old England came on behind as it usually does with building what we call our motorways. Now um, just near where we live is a a, a brand new great motorway that goes right round London and uh, it's meant to take the traffic off London. It's called the M25, Motorway 25. The problem with it was that they'd no sooner built it than the traffic that was using the M25 became too much. And it didn't pay you to travel on the M25. You got jammed up. So they've had to widen it and make more lanes. But I remember that when this was being built, only two miles away from us, when we first came to live where we are, there was terrific upheaval in the landscape. Very beautiful country around there where we live. It's the It's the county of Surrey, one of the most beautiful counties in England. And it's all hilly and valleys and so on. And they were going to build this motorway. And so they brought in all the big bulldozers of the heavy earth moving equipment and so on. And they were ploughing through the hills and gouging up the valleys and getting out the rocks. The whole thing was chaos and confusion while they are building this motorway. Because the motorway has got to be level and it's got to be straight. So that's it. And this is what it is here. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway, a motorway, a freeway if you like, for our God. God wants to come. God's on the move. God wants to come where? He wants to come among his people. And this is what revival is. There was a revival, must be, at least 40 years ago now or more, in Scotland, off the coast of Scotland, in the islands called the Hebrides. A very remarkable revival. People just got converted all over the place. You know, fell down and were convicted of their sins and so on. And and the, the, the leader in that revival was a man called Duncan Campbell. He was a real raw Scot. You could hardly understand him when he spoke, but... The, but he was the man through whom God brought this revival. And I heard him define it once in a meeting where I was. He said, revival is the coming of God among his people. It is an awareness of God laying hold of people. That's what revival is, the coming of God among his people. Well, you say God is already, I have the Holy Spirit. But this means God's presence becomes much more evident among us. In the Welsh revival which was in 1904 when hundreds of thousands of people were converted and the whole country was affected certain parts of Wales there was a great sense of God's presence everywhere and uh, one of the leaders in that revival wrote a book called Rent Heavens and he said the revival in Wales was the presence of God felt everywhere and in every awakening and revival there's ever been Whether it's in America or Britain or anywhere else. Indonesia, you name it. It's always been a great sense of the presence of God among people. People couldn't escape God's presence. God laying hold of people. So this is what Isaiah is saying here. He's saying God wants to come and work among his people. You see his people have been in captivity for 70 years. They've lost the sense of God. They've been dry and hopeless and dead. And now God's going to do something new among them. And what a God he is. This Isaiah chapter 40 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible about God. It shows how great God is. You read it through and you see. It says he's so great the universe is as nothing before him. And you think how fantastic the universe is today. It speaks about God Here weighing the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance and holding the dust of the earth in a basket, measuring the waters in the hollow of his hand. And he sees the earth as such a little thing in in, in the sight of God. God is so great. God in in respect of the universe. And then he speaks of God in in respect of the idol gods. The heathen had their idols and they thought they were so marvellous. And Isaiah here says, oh they're nothing, they're just bits of wood and stone. And compared to God, what can the idols do? He says God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and all the people of the earth are like grasshoppers before him. He stretches out heavens like a canopy, spreads them like a tent. And the idols are nothing compared with God. They don't even, they're not even real. And then he compares God with the great princes of the earth. And there were great princes. There were men like Nebuchadnezzar. There had been men like Pharaoh and We've had Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin, all the great rulers. Now we've got uh, Mrs. Thatcher, you know, and uh, <laughs> you've got your your president. The great rulers of our nations, clever people, marvelous people, can can ha- ha- wield great power. And he says, well, oh, he brings princes to naught He reduces the rulers to nothing. No the sooner they planted, it, the no sooner they sown, no the sooner do they take root, that he blows on them. And they, and they wither away. And we've seen great rulers come and go. But God abides still. So there's God in contrast to the universe. God in contrast to the idol gods. God in contrast to the rulers of the nation. And then chapter 40 ends up with God in respect of his people. And what a difference. So there's this great God. So great that you can't conceive of him. Who flung the stars into space. Holds all things in his hands this God is the God of whom it says he shall lead his flock like a shepherd he shall gather the lambs in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young he loves people he loves his own people It ends up by saying do you not know have you not heard that the Lord the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth doesn't get tired or weary he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. A merciful, loving God. That's your God. If you believe in him and you know him, that's my God. This great God, and I need to have a great conception of God. We make God too little. You just think he's a little puppet on a string. But he's not, he's the great God of the universe, God of the nations. Now, this God wants to come. And Isaiah is saying to, to his people, God's going to come among you and work. He's going to deliver you from your captivity. He wants to lead you and guide you and bless you. When John the Baptist came to be the herald of the Lord Jesus and the kingdom of God, he took up this verse and he preached it. He was calling people to repentance and to be baptized, to show their repentance. And they were coming from all over the place to Jordan to be baptized. Publicans and sinners and harlots and thieves, they were repenting of their sins. And he was getting people ready for the coming of Jesus. And he took this verse. And he said, prepare the way of the Lord. How are you going to prepare the way of the Lord? Well, you've got to make a road. And I believe that in revival, there is a need for a preparation. You see, we think revival is going to come. God's suddenly going to start working. All kinds of marvellous things are going to happen. People are going to be converted everywhere. Churches are going to be filled. You know, the kingdom's going to come. Just whoosh like that doesn't happen that way there's a preparation for revival always and every revival there's ever been there have been little groups of people and churches preparing the way of the lord they've never been written about sometimes nobody's known who they were but they prepared the way of the lord and my call to you tonight is this in the great need for god to come into our society and to clean things up and to change people's lives This great God could do it. He wants a road. He wants a way. And the way is through the lives of people. He doesn't just come through the air. He comes through people. And he's got to come through his own believing people. And I realize this. That what is needed is that every one of us should be a part of that road, that highway, a channel for God to get through to other people. Now, there are four things that need to be done if this road is to be made, this highway for God. The first, it says, is every valley shall be exalted, raised up. You can't make a freeway through a lot of valleys. It's got to be level. And valleys are depressed places. They're depressions in 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 the crust of the earth. They have some tremendous valleys. You've got some great valleys in, 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 in America. You've got the Grand Canyon, the greatest valley in the world, and uh, there's the Great Rift Valley in Kenya. There are valleys everywhere, big ones and little ones. Valleys are depressed places." And Matthew Henry, one of the great Puritanic ex- uh, expositors, says, uh, "God is hindered by our depressed states." You ever get depressed? Oh, lots of depressed states. You may not feel depressed, but you may be in a depressed state. Here are some of the valleys that you may be in. You may be in a valley of guilt. You feel very guilty about yourself. You Maybe guilty of the past. There are people, I've been in this kind of valley many times. You feel so ashamed of yourself. You've failed, you've sinned, you've made a mess of things. I counseled a man last time I was here in March... I was down in Lake Tahoe for a conference and I counseled a minister who came he was right on the point of committing suicide he was a minister and he was in the most dreadful state of any man I've ever had to counsel and he was just overloaded with a terrible sense of guilt of things that he'd done away years ago in the past and he could never get out of this valley of guilt because he could never come into the sense of forgiveness. People live in a valley of guilt. Then there's a valley of fear. I believe there's a valley somewhere in the States here called Fear, the Valley of Fear. Or there's a book written about the Valley of Fear. And fear is a valley. It's a negative thing. You're afraid of other people. You're afraid of life. You're afraid of the future. You're afraid to die. Sometimes people are afraid of heights or depths or all sorts of things. They have phobias and fears. And it's a valley. It's a negative, a depressed thing, is fear. And then there's doubt. Oh, doubt's a terrible valley. I went through a valley of doubt once for three months when I lost my faith in God and in everything. And I've never forgotten it. It was terrible. I sat in absolute spiritual darkness for three months. I never want that again. And when you doubt everything, you can't believe God's word and you can't trust God and you can't trust people. You're doubting this and you're cynical about that. It's a valley. It's a negative thing. Then there's a valley of inferiority. Lots of people are like that. You know, I can't. Always inferior. Can't do this, can't do that. And they're always thinking other people are better than themselves, and they have a terrible image of themselves, and they're always inferior. What a valley. They don't achieve anything, because they're in an inferiority complex valley. There's a valley of disappointment. Oh, you thought Christian life was going to be so marvelous, and you're disappointed. Oh, your marriage was going to be so marvellous. You, you, were, you were a saint and your wife was an angel. That's what we thought. She looked like an angel. She thought I was a saint because I had a clerical collar and a ministerial face. And we thought, oh, our marriage is going to be the most marvellous marriage there is on earth. Very soon we found ourselves in all kinds of difficulties. And there are people who are in a, in a valley of disappointment about marriage and family life and life itself. The terrible thing, the valley of disappointment. You know, there's dryness. Oh, there's such dry valleys. You've got a dry valley here in the Death Valley. Many people have died in that valley because it was so dry. People go through and there's nothing to drink. You get spiritually dry. Have you ever been like that? I have. Somehow the Bible doesn't live to you. You don't get any blessing from the services or the singing. You're just dry, 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 day after day. There's a valley of emptiness and defeat. Well, I may go on. Darkness, despair, sorrow, loss. All these valleys. So many of them. Now, the disciples were like this after, after Jesus died on the cross. You ever realize that? Jesus, whom they believed in, was the Messiah. Was going to bring the kingdom whom they followed for three and a half years. He was everything to them. They saw him taken away and Tried and beaten and buffeted they were all scared stiff and ran away and they saw him crucified on the tree and his body laid in the tomb everything was finished they didn't know what to do they hadn't got a future and everything came upon them fear guilt and doubt poor Peter he was so covered with guilt he denied the Lord three times they all had run away They were so afraid they didn't dare go outside the doors because the Jews might get hold of them and crucify the lot of them. Some of them began to doubt. They thought, well, was he the Messiah? No, he couldn't have been. This couldn't have happened. They were disappointed. And everything was hopeless. They shut themselves in an upper room, locked the door. Then came Jesus into their valley. And revealed himself, and everything was changed. He forgave them their sin, he drove away their fear, their doubt. Oh, every valley shall be filled, shall be exalted. Now, how do you exalt a valley? Well, I don't think you, you you pull it up by the roots. The only way to exalt a valley is to fill it. So you notice in Luke it says, "Every valley shall be filled." That's what grace is. Grace is God filling valleys. Filling your valley. That's what Jesus did. He came into that upper room and he filled the valley. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And they received everything from Jesus. Forgiveness, hope, peace, joy, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Everything Jesus gave it to them into their valley. Then came Jesus. And all we need to do is to admit that we've got a valley. I remember once I I was crying to God to bless me. I was feeling dry and down. And I said, Lord, I do want you to fill me. What's the matter with me? Help me. And he said, I can't fill you because you're not willing to be a valley. You want to be a mountaintop. You want to be a rock on the mountain top. You want to be very important. You want to be everybody to say what a wonderful preacher you are. I said, "The, uh, the rain doesn't fill rocks on the mountaintops. The psalmist says the rain fills fills pools. And are you willing to be a pool and an empty one at that? And it wasn't until I came and said, Lord, I am an empty pool. Please fill me. And he began to do it. What a wonderful thing. I've seen some valleys filled there used to be a valley once when where we, we lived in, in Devon and it was a horrible valley we used to stand and look at it and it had just ruined uh, a couple of ruined cottages and old trees in it and, and scrub there was nothing in that valley nothing beautiful in it and I thought what a worthless place that is but one day we went there and it was completely changed it was beautiful do you know what they'd done? they turned it into a reservoir they'd let water in And there it was a shining sheet of shimmering water from one side to the other. And what's more, it wasn't only beautiful, it supplied Plymouth with half its water. You've heard of Plymouth, haven't you? Because that's where the Plymouth fathers came from, to found America, a very important town, Plymouth. And it was supplying Plymouth with water. They would filled the valley. I know what it is to have my valleys filled. I remember one... Sunday, in the freezing cold of the midwinter, some years ago, going to preach. And I had to go through London, and I had to change trains, and I had to sit on the worst station in London, a dirty station that I never liked being on. It was early in the morning, it was bitterly cold, There was not a soul about, and I sat there a heap of misery. I'd got up that morning not feeling a bit like preaching or anything else, I just wanted to be miserable and I sat there being miserable and I thought and I had half an hour to wait for a train here yeah, there's biting winds coming down going right through my bones and I'm sitting there it's not a soul about because nobody sits on stations on an early Sunday morning in the middle of winter except crazy Baptist ministers going to preach and, and you know and here I am and I say Lord please help me please help me I can't preach if I'm like this and the Lord says uh, open your Bible and read it so I opened my Bible and I, I open it to the psalm and it starts off and it says um, sing unto the Lord well that didn't help me <laughs> because I mean I'm not like this guy with a guitar and a voice I couldn't sing unto the Lord and then it says uh, take a timbrel and sing and take a harp and so on well I hadn't got one anyway so that wasn't any really good and if I had I couldn't play it and on it went like this nothing helped me you see when you're feeling a heap of misery when you're in a valley exhortations don't help you it's no good coming and saying to a valley now come on get up valley and fill yourself the valley can't do it I couldn't fill myself but God knew my need he said go on reading so I read past all the musical instruments and things and, <laughs> and, I, and I got to a point where it says I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Well, that's good. Yes, he did. I remember he saved me. And, uh, and I have lifted the burden from your shoulder. Yes, I remember that. And then he went on to say, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And I stared at it. Psalm 80, 82, actually. I couldn't read anymore. And the Lord kept saying, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And he gave me a vision of a a nest of little birds, all with their mouths wide open. And the mother and the father bird coming, stuffing the food down as hard as they could, down their little throats, and going and getting more. And God said, I want you to be like that. Just be a little bird. Open your mouth. I'll fill it. And you know, I just opened my heart to the Lord and said, Lord, you fill me. And I don't know, his word began to come alive to me. And by the time that train came in, I was so full of joy and peace and love and all that the Holy Spirit could give me. I got on that train and I was glad it was empty because I could sing all the way to my destination. And over. Nobody... <laughs> when I got to the church, you know, I, I couldn't get to the pulpit quick enough to start to preach because my heart was so full. Now that was only one occasion and I have never, never come to the place In my life, when I have been a valley of any kind, whether it's guilt or fear or or, or shame or doubt or inferiority or disappointment or dryness, but when I've come to the foot of the cross and I've just cried to the Lord, he's begun to fill the valley. He doesn't just uh, suddenly fill it to the top. just comes trickling in until the valley is filled. So what I say is this. This is grace. You bring to God the negative... He's always got the positive to give you. Bring him the sin. Repent of it. And he'll give you the cleansing. And the righteousness. Give him the need. And he'll give you the fullness. Bring him the vice. And he will give you the virtue. Murray Mishain once said. And I haven't got it yet to quote. He said. For every lack in me. I have found a corresponding fullness in Christ. That's what grace is. And we've got to live in grace. You're always going to be in a valley, a whole succession of valleys sometimes. You go from valley to valley. But there's always grace to fill that valley. And it'll become a beautiful, useful thing. Now, second thing is, every mountain and hill should be brought low. Now, here's the opposite. You see, if valleys are depressions, mountains and hills... are are great obstructions, they're exalted places. And Isaiah himself tells us in chapter 2, you can read it, verse 11 and 17, and again chapter 14, verse 13, that, that these mountains are everything that exalts itself against the Lord. It says every mountain and high hill that exalts itself against the Lord. Many, many people have done that. Pharaoh did it. Nebuchadnezzar it in Babylon. So the mountains are not just mountains of difficulty. What he's speaking about here? Are mountains of pride. When John the Baptist preached this, he knew there were many, many people in need who were valleys. and Jesus would need to come and fill them. But he knew there were many people who were proud, proud Pharisees. Now, what are you going to do with the mountain? If you're going to make a highway, you've got to bring this mountain down. That's the only thing that God can do with pride is to bring it down. There's more pride in all of us than there's meat in an egg. And pride is the root of all sin. Pride was Satan's original sin. You know that? There are passages in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 which speak about Lucifer, Prince of the morning morning star who was perfect when he was created until the day when iniquity was found in him and the iniquity that was found in him was this says in I think it's the Ezekiel passage five times he says I will exalt myself above the stars of God I will make myself like the most high I will exalt my throne above the stars of heaven, I will be like God. What did God do? only thing God could do, he cast him out down to hell. And he's been down here ever since. But he's cast out. But his sin was pride. And that pride, yes, it's uh, Isaiah 14, you find that. That pride is in us all. There are many forms of pride. There's the pride of face. You think you look good, there's a the pride of race, you think you are good, better than the other race. There's a pride of pride of place, get a position, you look down on other people. And there's the pride of grace, you think you're so good, pious. There's obvious pride like arrogance, it just struts around, and pushes other people around. There's boasting, who of us doesn't boast about ourselves, speak about ourselves. There's the pride of self-will that always wants your own way. Maybe in the home, or the church, or at work. There's that subtle thing called self-righteousness. And you grasp at anything to think you're, you're better than others. And that you uh, have merit with God. Self-righteousness a terrible thing. And there's that liking to excel over other people. We like to do that. Pushing them down. There's a the seesaw syndrome as we... My wife and I call it. We lived like that for some time. I was always wanting to get the better of my wife. She was wanting to get the better of me in an argument. So I push her down, push myself up. We compete with one another. Terrible. We've all got this pride in some form or other. And Paul had it. He writes about it in Philippians and he says, If if, if any man had cause to glory in the flesh, in his own self, I more. And he lists a whole lot of things that give him credit. His birth, his ancestry, you know, his religion, his works, his zeal, oh, everything. He piles them all up. These are all things that make me the great Paul, great Saul of Darsus. All the things that are gained to me. It's all pride. God brought him down. He met Jesus on the road to to Damascus. This proud man proud Pharisee. He thinks Christ is an imposter and the Christians are all to be destroyed and he's going to Damascus to haul them to prison. He is the great Saul of Tarsus, member of the Sanhedrin. And he hears a voice from heaven and a light shines about him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't know who it is. He says, who are you? The voice answers, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting suddenly dawns on him like a blinding flash that this Jesus whom he despised and rejected as a felon to die on a, on a cross is the, the son of God that he must have come down from heaven as the Christian said he did all the way down and the man who's climbing up the ladder meets the man who came down the ladder and Paul is broken See, the cross is the broken eye. cross is the broken eye. And the only way to bring a mountain down is to break it. Sometimes the mountain doesn't come crumbling down straight away. I think it did with Paul's, in Paul's case. But in many times it has to be a slow reduction of the mountain. It wears away. God bringing you down, bringing you down. What brings you down? Well, I was a very proud person. I came of a proud family. I belonged to a very proud lot of Christians. I thought they were better than anyone else. I came to a college, which was a famous college, and there I came in as a a, a special candidate from South Africa, nominated by the Baptist Union. And Oh, you know, I was a great guy. I'm going to be another Spurgeon head as big as a pumpkin. <laughs> when a guy came like that into college, he was in, the, 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 they began at the, the bottom the first year, the senior students always, for a whole 12 months, they tried to humiliate him. They'd do all sorts of things to humiliate him. They never humiliated me. Because as the fast as they pushed me down, like a cork, I'd pop up again. And then uh, I got married and we had a sick child and that ought to have humbled me and grieved me very much but it didn't really break the eye one day I read the second of Philippians and I got a vision of Calvary God showed me how Jesus had come right down from the Father's glory to the cross of shame for me I found myself weeping over it God was beginning to bring the mountain down Taken him years to do it and he's still doing it. But if God is going to get a highway through our lives we've got to be humbled at the foot of the cross in repentance and brokenness. You say, I'm not a mountain. No, but you may be a little hill. This says every mountain and every little hill should be brought low. God has to deal with every atom of pride in us and humble us so we're brought down until we feel we're nothing and God humbled me by showing me my own sin in such a manner that there came a day when I felt I wasn't fit to be a minister never mind about being another Spurgeon I wasn't fit to lick his boots or even be a minister I really felt I wasn't fit to be a Christian and name the name of Christian God has to do that. And when we get there, God begins to revive. Because he says, I dwell in the high and holy place with him that is of a broken and a contrite spirit to revive the heart of the humble. But he's got to humble you first before he can revive you. Revival never comes through the proud. It comes through the humble. Every mountain brought low. Then it says, the crooked places should be made straight. Now you don't have crooked places in America, I notice. All the roads are straight. They're either north and south and east and west. That's great. That's how you worked your country. But in England it's not like that. Because England has developed over many, many years and certain parts of the country, there are lots of hills and long, long ago old farmers went all round the hills and they made a track and then they made the track wider and the carts went all round the hills. And then eventually the cars came and now they've got roads, and the roads go all around the hills. And it's very difficult. When you travel on roads like that, you can't see around the corner. Don't know what's coming. And there are crooked places in our lives. Now one of the most crooked men in the Bible was Jacob. He was dishonest. He was a man who wanted out was out for himself didn't mind who he deceived to get what he wanted. So he deceived his old father when he was blind. He deceived his uncle. He robbed his brother of the birthright. He was a crooked man. But God was on his track. And God wanted to bless Jacob. The only way he could bless him was to straighten out his crookedness. One day in the form of an angel, God got hold of him and wrestled with him. And Jacob was so crooked that You know, the angel couldn't get the better of him. Jacob's twisting and turning like this, you know, and the angel can't really get him down. When he saw that he didn't prevail against him, the angel just touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh and a kind of current went through and shrank a sinew in his thigh and made him lame. So he sagged in the angel's arms, couldn't wrestle any more. God straightened him out. Never read that Jacob deceived anymore after that. He became a prince with God. So as he walked into the sunlight but he limped on his thigh but he wasn't a crooked man anymore. And God has to deal with crookedness in our lives. You see I found this it's so easy to be unreal to put on a false smile you know, there's you, you, somebody you don't like and you've been talking about them with a friend and all of a sudden they come around the corner and you say, oh, hello, so glad to see you. <laughs> Not real at all. Or on the telephone, you know. You're in a bad mood. Pick up the telephone. Say, hello. There's the minister on the phone. Oh, yes, I'm yes, 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 so, so pleased to hear boy. <laughs> change. You can be like those chameleons. You ever get chameleons in your country? You get them in South Africa. They change colour. If you put them on a red leaf, they turn go red. If you put them on a green leaf, they go green. And we can be like this. We shilly shally. We're not real. We're not ourselves. We put on false fronts and false words. Ministerial look, you know. Church member look. We may be false in our motives, dishonest in our dealings in business, in money matters, telling half-truths, making a false profession, exaggerating, you know, I was preaching in such and such a place, you know, and the place would be packed! But it wasn't, it was only half-full, really. <laughs> but you say it's packed. And uh, being perverse and awkward, you know, crooked, you're not clear and straight, people don't quite know where they are with you. And you're perverse at, at home, They're evasive, awkward, not open and transparent. Like Jacob, God says every crooked place must be made straight. Because he's a straight God. He's a God of righteousness. And he demands righteousness in our lives. And anything that's not right, that's not straight, God's got to deal with it. I've had to repent a lot in my life of unreality and crookedness. And the last thing is, the rough places should be made plain. Now, rough places are places where there are boulders and rocks. And you can't drive cars over those sort of things. They rip the tyres to pieces. And in those days, armies couldn't march and people couldn't walk over those rough places. They cut their feet. So if you're going to make a highway from the Lord, you've got to smooth out the rough things. What are the rough ways? Those rough attitudes we have, those rough reactions, those rough words we say, those cruel responses, those cruel things we do and say, oh what a lot of that has been among Christians. I've sat in church meetings and heard some cruel things said, those judgmental attitudes we have to others. I knew a man who prophesied in our church, and every time he prophesied, it was always judgmental. Thus saith the Lord, I'm going to chastise you, my people, because you have not done this and you have not done that. We all said, Oh, dear Lord, please, because. But next week, he gives another prophecy, and it's, it's judgmental again. And every time it's judgmental, so we go to this brother and say, Why are your prophecies always judgmental? And we discover this man's got a judgmental spirit. Nothing's ever right in his eyes. He's always criticizing God's people. There's a roughness that comes through the prophecies. We're rough in our preaching, rough in our talking to one another. We can be uh, preaching love, but acting unkindly at home. Seeking revival, oh yes, we'll fast and pray for revival. But it can be so hard and callous in our hearts. That is Oh, God's had to do with me a lot about roughness. Let me tell you a story my wife's heard. I used to be very unkind, very often at home. uh, One home we lived in, north of England, where it was very cold, we used to have to light fires. I'm no good at lighting fires, because I was brought up in a hot country where we never had fires to light. Whenever I lit a fire, it always went out. And here am I on a Sunday morning in my best Sunday suit getting ready to go to church and I'm like trying to light the fire. And it keeps going out. And the more it gets, goes out, the more mad I get. And just when I'm at my maddest, along comes my wife and she says, what's the matter, darling? So this fire won't go out. Then she starts giving me some advice on how to light a fire. If there's anything a man doesn't like, It's when he's trying to do something he thinks he ought to be able to do, when his wife comes and tells him how. So I'm getting mad now, not just with the fire, but with the wife that's telling me how to light the fire. And in the end, I get so mad, I'm angry, and I shout at her, and I throw the tongs down, and I say, light the jolly thing yourself, and I stalk out Bible under my arm. And I go out in the garage and we have a little Morris car, a little tiny car in those days. And it's a cold morning and I start the car and it won't start. (laughs) So that was helpful. So that I'm trying to get this car to start. And as I'm doing so, the Lord's speaking to me. And he's saying, where are you going with this car? And I say, well, I'm going down to the church, Lord. What are you going to do there? Well, I'm going to preach, Lord. Oh, yes. And I'm going to conduct the communion oh yes and the Lord says and those people are going to look at you and they're going to say oh he's now a pastor a lovely man look how beautifully he preaches how graciously he takes the communion breaks the bread his wife must be so proud of him <laughs> no doubt she's at the back of the church there just thinking how beautiful he's taking the service but she's not at the back of the church she's at home crying her eyes out because I've been so rough with her Lord says, you're a hypocrite. You can't go down to the church and do that and leave your wife at home like that. You go back and tell her you're sorry. I can remember that morning getting out of that car and going back. I think it was the first time I ever did it in our marriage. Asking her forgiveness for my rough attitude. I went back and would you believe it? The car started like that. And the Lord saw to that but, you know, rough attitudes always grieve the Lord Jesus. James and John were like that, you see. They, they were going one day to a Samaritan town and the Samaritans wouldn't receive them. James and John got so angry, they said, Lord, why do you put up with this kind of thing? Elijah called down fire from heaven, why don't you call down fire from heaven and consume this, this lot? And Jesus said, you know not what spirit you are. I did not come to the world to destroy men's lives, but to save them. We'll go to another city. Leave them. Jesus wasn't like that. He, uh, only once he made a whip of small cords and drove the, ferret, the, the people out of the temple, but he was, he was a man of peace. He was gentle and meek and lowly of spirit. God's got to deal with rough things. Rather, if you're rough at home with your wife, you hinder the Lord. If you're rough with other people in the office, or school, or college, wherever you are, you hinder the Lord. They cannot see Jesus in rough attitudes. And you see, this is the way the highway is made. God dealing with these things in us that hinder him. The valleys, the mountains, the crooked places, the rough places and it says every every mountain every valley every crooked place isn't the wonderful thing if god is doing this all over the place and people are repenting of their valleys and their mountains and their crookedness and their rough places and what's happening god is getting through because the world is looking in it says and all flesh shall see the salvation of god they're not reading a bible They're not coming to church to hear sermons but they'll see the salvation of God working in your life. Here's a guy in the office and he's so proud as a peacock nobody can stand him. He's always pushing others around. He's so self-important but God begins to bring the mountain down and people look on him and say look at Bill, he used to be such a pain in the neck. But do you understand that? But look at him now. What's changing him like that? And here's a girl and she's always miserable and moaning and groaning and griping. And she's such a valley. Nothing's ever right. She always turns up with a long face at the, at the office or school. And everybody's fed up with it. And then the Lord begins to deal with the valley and fill it. And she starts coming and she's overflowing with joy and praise. And her face is shining. I say, what on earth's happened to, to Mary? Oh, it's Jesus done that. And isn't this what happened, the Jesus revolution, the start of the Calvary chapels, that Jesus changed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people up and down this part of the country and transformed them. I met them in 71 and they were some of the brightest and most beautiful young people I'd ever met. They restored my faith in the power of God to save young people. At their worst. Street people, drug addicts transformed. This is the salvation of God. And then Isaiah says, all flesh will see the glory of the Lord. Because this is the glory of the Lord, to change people's lives. And he gets through, and this is the beginning of revival. Tonight, this is a message for you. You've got a valley that needs to be filled tonight. You're a mountain that needs to be brought down. You've got crooked places in your life that need to be straightened. You've been rough and you need to be smoothed out by the grace of God. You need to repent of these things. and Let Jesus come in and save you. Some of you perhaps never come to Jesus yet. And you know that you've got these things in your life. Say, what can God do for me? He can come into your heart and your life and save you and cleanse you. Because Jesus died for you on the cross. And he sent the Holy Spirit to come and fill your life and change you, and it can begin tonight, if you are willing.